Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians this morning. I have decided that I'm going to do Obadiah a little bit later on in our study through the Thessalonians, and so that is still coming. I don't want you to think that I've avoided it. It is coming. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. And I'll read the first 10 verses, and then we will, our text this morning will be verse 1. So, but I just want to set the context in, in, of the first chapter, and then we will spend some time in verse 1. And I know you're already thinking, Pastor, how can you get a sermon out of verse 1? Well, just wait. I think we're going we're gonna, to uh, have a good time in verse 1. Listen to the word of God as, as, as it is read this morning. Paul and Silas, no, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me as I pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is inspired, that it is what is here is as if you had spoken it. And so this morning, as we look at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that he would illuminate the truths of your word to our hearts and that we might agree with him and that we might again learn and go forth rejoicing this morning in our God. And so I pray that as we go to your word, that again, that you would open our eyes, that you would keep the distractions of the weak aside so that we might again hear from you going forth more in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of your glory I pray amen when is the last time that you actually received a letter 
not an email, not a text, but a genuine letter, a letter that somebody took the time to sit down on a, with a piece of paper and a pen and to write to you. And they wrote it out on paper, maybe lined paper, wrote you that letter, took the time to put it in an envelope, put your address on it, put their return address, mailed it to you, and you received it and read it. I can't remember the last time I received a letter like that. I would say that letter writing probably has gone the way of the dodo bird, right? We just don't do it anymore. But at one time, if you wanted to communicate with anybody who was far away from you, unless you were sending a carrier pigeon, which would make a very small letter, you would have to send a letter with someone and communicate with them. And so letters were often written because they were, they would, you could express your feelings and your thought and you could craft them and you could make them so that you could say exactly what you wanted to say. But that has been replaced in the modern time where we now have replaced it with texts. You start to text and it even tells you what words you want to do next. You email and it gives you the next phrase. Just push tab. You don't even have to put the words in anymore. Fact is, sometimes they say it better than you were going to say it. Right? You, instead of writing, you can make a phone call. You can FaceTime. You just don't need to write anymore. But maybe in that we've lost actually communication because we communicate so much that we really aren't communicating anymore. I've gotten texts from my children and I'm confused, <laughs> right? Everything is, is acronyms and shortcuts and emojis and we don't even have to you know, write words anymore. And I, I look at that and I'm like, I, I'm not sure if, if, they're, if they're actually having a stroke or if they're actually <laughs> saying something, right? And oftentimes, I think as we read Scripture, especially the epistles, we forget that we're actually, we're actually reading a letter. We're reading a letter that someone has sat down and written. A letter that is written, crafted, carefully written to a specific person or a specific audience. And so we are really, as we read them, sitting in on somebody's personal correspondence as they have written from one, from one person to another. And as we read this letter, we, we are struck again by this fact, that, this, that these letters start out the exact same way every single time that there is a, actually a way of letter writing in the first century that's different than the way we write letters. Now, when we write a letter, we start, Dear John. Ooh, some of you, that brings back bad memories. <laughs> but you write and you say, Dear John, and then you write your letter, and at the end of your letter, then you give your, you say, Love, love Tony, right? So you, you, you put, you express who's writing the letter to you. 
or, or who's writing the letter at the very end. But in the ancient world, they had a three-tier system as they began the introduction. And we'll call it the AAA introduction. They started, I came up with that myself. Uh, they came up with an introduction, a AAA. You had the author, you had the audience, and then you had the address. And so there was this AAA introduction to a book. And in that, you would get who wrote the book, and they put that right up front. I mean, who wrote the, the letter, which ultimately turns into a book. So I was completely wrong. But it, who wrote the letter? And so right away, as you read that, you know who was writing to you. So you weren't just going to throw it away. Like you would know immediately, okay, I want to listen to this. This is why I always put my name at the end of a letter. But the idea is right away, you would know who was writing to, to you. And so you know, knew that you needed to read the letter. And then you knew it was addressed to you, so you weren't reading somebody else's mail. And then there was always a, gr a greeting that came with that. And so that was the way that they would begin their letters in the first century. And that's exactly the way that Paul begins this letter. Now, we would all agree that Scripture is inspired. And we would all agree, at least I hope we would agree, that every word in Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and correction, instruction, and righteousness. But if we were to be honest, we would look at verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians and maybe every first verse in, in every book that we read, and we'd see that kind of as an extra, superfluous. We just want to... We just want get, to get over it, get past it, because we want to get to the good stuff, right? We want to, the, the good stuff is coming. We got to get through the greeting to get to the good stuff. And yet we have to understand that every word of Scripture is actually inspired. And so it is profitable. And therefore, we need to treat verse 1 just like we would verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. It's got something to teach us. And so Paul, as he began, and we would say this, Thessalonians is most likely his first book to be read, depending on where your view is, where Galatians is written. But Paul has taken the normal formula for greetings and salutations in a letter, and he has infused them with some theology, and it's some theology that we need to get out. And so this morning, as we go through this AAA introduction and greeting, we will see, we will draw out some of those ideas. And so I want us to see this morning the ministers of grace, the recipients of grace, and the desire for grace. And I think we'll just see those as we walk through this text, as we look at the author, the audience, and the address. So Paul begins this letter with Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. A rather benign beginning, but here he begins and he expresses the names of three men that would have been very familiar to the Thessalonians. They would have known these men. Each of these men were known to them because they were there at the start of the church of Thessalonica. They had been there 
they were had a hand in the beginning of the founding of the church. Now Paul's name comes first because he is the most senior member of the three. He is the one that is got the most experience. He's got the most authority. Now we remember that Paul was actually his Greek name. His Hebrew name was Saul. The word Saul means desired or ask or ask for. And so Paul is referred to Saul for most of the beginning of the, of the book of Acts until Acts chapter 13, where Luke tells us he was Saul, also known as Paul. And so when he, after his clash with Bargesus, he was ultimately began to be called Paul. Now, Paul probably started to be called Paul because he was a missionary to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles, and it would just make sense that he would take a Greek name as he went into the Gentile territories. Now, Paul means little. Paul means little. And there's no evidence at all that his name meant anything to his companions. So we don't, we don't affirm from that that he was short. We don't affirm anything from it. It's just his name meant little. And so that was Paul's name. Paul was born in Tarsus. It was a great city of learning in the ancient world. It had boasts of its own academy. And we remember that Paul was, was a, a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen not like some who had to buy their citizenship or who had to bribe an official or do something in order to achieve it. And so more than likely his grandfather or father had done something so that he would be able to have natural Roman citizenship. Yet at the same time, Paul identifies himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews and he identifies himself from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's interesting because being born in Tarsus, you would think that he would be a Hellenistic Jew, and yet he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, something that only a devout family would, would, would identify as they are not in Jerusalem, at least for the early part of Paul's life. And so he is also keeps track of his lineages, which is which was also very difficult. Benjamin was right next to Judah and attended to get sucked into Judah. And so only a devout Jew would, would again understand and, and keep track of his lineage. Many of them had simply lost it as they had been dispersed. But not Paul, not Paul's family. They were devout Judaizers. Now, we do know this, that Paul eventually was moved and his family moved to Jerusalem where he began his education. And he began his education out of, under Gamalia, Gamaliel, who was one of the great rabbis of his time. He was a, a, a devout Jew and a rabbi who was known as the great teacher in Israel. And so he began that education and, and under this, this great rabbi and he began to be taught in Judaism. But Paul was an above average student. He had zeal for all of these things 
and he was, became a Pharisee very early in his life. And he, he was one who pursued his studies and pursued Judaism at a rate above those who were with him of his age. And in that, then, Paul would have learned several things. As a, as a Pharisee, he would have learned first to hate the Gentiles, because after all, they were dirty dogs. But as Paul grew, it was clear that he was a man of influence around around the Jewish people. He was respected by the Sanhedrin. He was walked around among the elite of the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And we could say this, humanly speaking, he was left to leave a mark on the Jewish people. He was a great man. He was a man who had ambition, who was bright, who was zealous. We might even say he displayed the characteristics of a type A personality, right? He was, he was zealous, he was a hard worker, he was bright, and he went for it. Well, one thing is clear that as Paul comes onto the pages of Scripture, or Saul as he is spoken of, is that he had no love lost for, the, for Jesus and for the Christians, this cult that was coming along, this cult that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, And he hated them and he persecuted them. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He held the cloaks. He gave the approval. And his hatred for Christians drove him so much that he began to persecute Christians all over. And he didn't just stay in Palestine. He, he traveled. He was a, persecution, a, a persecutor with travel plans. And he put them to death. And he imprisoned them, male and female, and so it was that on, that on the on the road to Damascus, as he's going to persecute Christians, that the Lord, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, appears to him in all of his glory. He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And it is there that though Paul is blinded by the glory of Jesus Christ, and he can't see physically that his Eyes of his heart are open, and for the first time, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees him for who he truly is. And this hater of Jesus Christ and this persecutor of the church is completely and radically changed. And it, it is funny, as one commentator said, don't miss this. He now calls Jesus Lord. For a devout Jew that, that Paul was, a devout Jew would never use the name Lord except for Yahweh. And Paul now is describing to Jesus Christ that he is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And so here is Paul, who was completely and radically changed. He went from a persecutor and a blasphemer to one who saw Jesus Christ and received mercy and was shown mercy by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as Paul says, he was the chief of sinners. He recognized that he persecuted and killed believers and was against God. And before his conversion, he says, I was the chief of sinners. I was the worst of the worst until God saved me and changed me. And now Paul, the one who once was so radically working in Judaism, so radically putting his lineage and his, and his works before God and before people, now says, I count that what all but loss. I count it all but loss. More than that, I count all these things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might be, gain Christ. And Paul said, you know what? I have experienced the grace of God and I have experienced that he would save even someone like me. He came to save even someone like me so there is hope for everyone. He made me a new creature. He can make anyone a new creature. There is no room for despair. And so this is the one who begins to pen the letter to the Thessalonians. Now I want you to notice another thing that is absent here in this first line. If you were to turn over to several other epistles, you would notice this. Paul would say something like this. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Paul, what? A bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul does not put any titles on this at all. He doesn't, he doesn't put any kind of authority over top of them. He just simply says, Paul. And there's a reason for that. First of all, we would, we would understand that in some of the other books, like 1 Corinthians Galatians, Galatia, they were coming after Paul's apostleship. They were cutting, they were cutting him down and they were saying, he's not a real apostle. He's, he's an imposter. And so Paul there is forced in many ways because of his opposition to now defend his apostleship. And he does that all through 2 Corinthians because they are now trying to undermine his apostleship. Now, it's not because Paul doesn't face some kind of, of opposition in first, because we see in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 that there are those who are who are coming after him, but, that, but this is more self-vindication here he, because the opposition here is more based upon his character than his apostleship. And so it's clear that the enemies at Thessalonica sought to undermine the converts' confidence in Paul, but the attack was not on his apostleship. So Paul is here saying, I'm just Paul. I don't need to defend, I don't have to put authority over you. And in fact, the relationship is so warm with this church. This is one of the, 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 this is the warmest epistle in scripture as Paul has affection for these believers and there's no strife between them. And so Paul doesn't find it necessary to pull the authority card. He simply writes to them. Instead, they recall their memory and the facts concerning his character and conduct. That's all that he needs for the Thessalonians. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a letter that is warm, a letter that doesn't need authority. They only need to remember who he was when he was among them. Well, you might say, you keep on saying Paul wrote this letter, but I look at the beginning, Pastor, and I, I'm pretty sharp. There's three names there. It seems to me like you're missing the other guys because it says Paul and Silas and Timothy. It seems like there's three authors here and you keep on saying Paul. Why do you do that, Pastor? Well, some have suggested that all three have an active role in writing and, and that is, I would say, write to some degree, to a small degree, and I will tell you how it is, how I would understand this. It is, Paul does include their names. In fact, it was a common practice of Paul to include the names of those who were with Paul and who undoubtedly were part of Paul's ministry and part of, the, a part of him as he is ready to write, as he is getting ready to write to someone. He, they are part of those, that group that he is speaking with before he writes. So he is, he is in the process of writing. Now, we sometimes think that these letters kind of floated down to these guys out of, out of the thin air and they just fell, right? But we, we have to understand that God is working through human means and God uses people. He uses their education. He uses their vocabularies. He uses their experiences. And he uses their minds as well as he gets them ready to write scripture. So Paul, Paul didn't just sit down and, and wait for God to dictate for him. Paul, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, would understand there are certain things that the church needed, and then he would sit down, and the Holy Spirit then moved him to write what was necessary. So it's not like Paul just, you know, we, we, we sometimes have the idea that Paul had no activity at all, or the writers of Scripture had no activity at all in it. But they really, really did, because God works through human means to write Scripture. Interesting. So, when Paul writes the first Corinthians, uh, to 1 Corinthians, the first letter, he includes Sosthenes, name with there. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to Sosthenes, and Sosthenes, our brother. So he says, he uses someone else's name there. He, when he writes to the other, other letters, he uses Timothy's name. When he writes to Philemon, um, not to Philemon, but when he writes other letters to Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, yes, and Philemon, he uses Timothy's name. So he, he includes those who are with him. Now these names aren't written because they are, you write a sentence, I write a sentence, or you write a word, I'll write a word. That's not what was going on here. They're included because the names were known to the, first of all, for several reasons. They were known to the recipients. And they were those who stood with Paul as he wrote in full agreement with the content of what Paul would write. And so these men were ministering with Paul. And so Paul is, is not a lone ranger. He doesn't come across as some type of independent from everyone else. But he's part of a ministry team and he writes for that ministry team. And so he often wrote on behalf of those who were involved in the spiritual 
formation of that church and that congregation or the people that he was writing to. Nonetheless, this is Paul writing. This is Paul who is actually writing. And we see this, an example of this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Notice that Paul is moving from the singular, from the plural to the singular. For we wanted to come to you, speaking for the group, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So Paul is writing, and he's writing for the group, and yet Paul is writing for himself. And he is, he is in one sense, he is, the, he is the author and he is the writer, but he is also including the others. And we see this, we find the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5, 5, verse 7. This is the same idea. So it is, it is not that the other ones are picking up the pen, but rather that Paul writes with their blessing and understanding. And so Paul writes this book. He is the author who is penning it under the Holy Spirit. And this is this man. This is this man who has been transformed by the grace of God. Once he despised Jesus Christ, once he hated his children, and now he has been moved by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that has made him new, and now he is a new creature, and now Paul is a minister of grace, and now he will be the one who will now go forth and share the gospel and be a minister of grace and bring that to others. But Paul is not alone. There are those who stand with him, and the first name that we come across is Salvanus. That is a Latin name. We know him as Silas, right? We know him as Silas. Now, we first, we first read about Silas or Silvanus in Acts chapter 15. It's actually interesting that Luke calls him Silas and Paul calls him Silvanus. I don't know why. Maybe that was just the, the name that he was used to. I was just thinking the other day, I have a brother-in-law named Willie. Everyone calls him Willie. Willie, I call him William. I have no idea why. I just do. I should probably ask him if it irritates him. But, but the idea here is, it seems that Paul has a pet name for him. He just, he's the only one that seems to call him Sylvanus, and yet that's what, exactly what he does. And so he just has a name for him while everyone else calls him Silas. And so maybe he liked the Latin name. I don't know. Uh, but Silas is his other name. So we are introduced to Silas in, by Luke in Acts chapter 15. And we find out that actually Silas was an important Jewish member and a leader in the early Jerusalem church. In fact, if we remember, Acts chapter 15 is, is the Jerusalem council. And we find Silas there. And so the elders and the apostles are, are deliberating, as it were, on how to respond to the threat against the church by the Judaizers. And so the church of, uh, uh, and leadership has come together with the apostles and elders, and they're trying to figure out what do they do? Do the, Jew, do the Gentiles have to be under the Mosaic law? What do, they, do they have to become Jews to be saved? And so they deliberate, and they come up with, no, they don't. 
And in fact, th th they don't have to keep the Jewish law. There are, there are four stipulations that they give for the weakness of the Jews, but not, not eternal principles. And he says, you, you actually are full functioning members of the church. You are equal with the Jews within the church and the fellowship, and you are together. And so they coin, they, they, they produce a letter and Silas takes this letter and he is to read this letter to them. And so he takes this letter and he takes it out to the churches at Antioch and he reads this letter to them and he's amazed at the response that is, that is taken there by the Gentile believers. And so here is Silas a leader in the church, one who now begins to travel and to take the letter. And he goes where Paul and Barnabas have been ministering into those churches. Now we also know just off the edge that he was a prophet. He had the gift of prophecy. And maybe this is why he comes before Timothy because he is one who speaks publicly, one who declares God's truth by revelation. And he too is a, is a public speaker more than Timothy. He's a Roman citizen like Paul. And so as, as we look in Acts, Paul is planning his second missionary journey right after the Jerusalem Council. And as he begins his plans for his next missionary journey to preach the gospel of the Gentile lands, he has a falling out with Barnabas. Barnabas wants to take Jean-Marc. Paul says, no, we're not, I, I don't want to take him. He hasn't been faithful. I don't want to bring him. And so we have Barnabas, the encourager, says, no, I'm going to stick with him. And Paul says, I, I'm not going to take him with me. And so there is a split and Silas becomes that perfect substitute for Barnabas. He's already a leader. He's already well-known. He's already prepared. And so Silas continues on with Paul in his second missionary journey. And so they depart from Antioch, going through what would we would call modern-day Turkey, ministering to the Word and to the, to the churches that Paul had planted. And so they begin to visit those new churches and plant new ones in the second missionary journey. And it is so while they are going along, Silas is with Paul when Paul receives the vision of, from the Macedonian man in Acts 16. And he hears those words, come help me. And so Silas goes with Paul to Macedonia and preaches the gospel of Philippi. They preach the gospel together in Thessalonica. They continue on their ministry to Corinth. But after that, we lose track of Silas. Luke no longer speaks of him. Paul never speaks of him. Don't feel sorry for Silas, though, right? God, and God wrote scripture. It's not that they neglected him and forgot about him. God didn't want him in the pages of scripture. We tend to go like, oh, he spent a lot of time with him and he just ditched him. But that's not what takes place. But we do have one little hint as to what happened to Silas. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 12. 
gives us the glimpse that maybe Silas didn't completely fall off the map. He says, Though Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, here is Silas, and who is he working with? The Apostle Peter, and he is the secretary, as it were, and he is writing down the words for Peter as Peter dictates First Peter. And so Silas is still in ministry. Silas is still faithful. And this is who this man is. He is recording the letter of First Peter for him. And here is this man. This is the man that is now standing behind what is about to be written to them. They knew who he was. They knew that he was a faithful leader. And this was Silvanus. This was the one who had been with Paul when they founded the church. That brings us to the third companion, Timothy. Timothy. Now, Timothy is put last because he is the subordinate member of the team. Not everyone has the same role. Not everyone has the same authority. And Timothy was not an apostle and he wasn't a prophet. He did not have those titles. He did not have those giftings from God. He was a helper. He was a helper. And so he would have engaged in planning. He would have engaged in, in, in maybe baptizing uh, converts, planning travel. Maybe he's the one who got the food. I don't know. But he would have had a lesser role. He might have been working with new converts after they were saved, but he was not the primary preacher. He was not the primary gospel uh, giver, the public speaker. He first appears again for us in Acts chapter 16. Right after Silas is introduced by Luke, Paul starts his second missionary journey and as he's headed out, they pick up a young disciple named Timothy. Now, Timothy was the son of a, of a Jewish woman and he was one that was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, whose father was a Greek. His father was probably a pagan. And so Timothy was not circumcised because the Gentiles hated circumcision, but in order not to, be, to minister to the Jews, as Paul was normally going to the synagogue first when he went to New City, he had him circumcised so that he would be able to minister to them. Now, Timothy first heard the promises of the Messiah through his mother and grandmother. Second Timothy records, as, as Paul writes to him, that from a childhood you have known the sacred writing which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you, however, continue things which you have learned and be convinced of knowing from what? From whom you have learned them. In other words, you heard the scriptures from your grandmother and mother you know that they're reliable. And so what we do find out is later on is that Paul is what? The spiritual father of Timothy. 
Paul comes along. Paul preaches the gospel. Paul talks about Jesus Christ as he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Timothy comes to salvation. And so, according to 2 Timothy, it suggested that, that Paul, when he was stoned in Lystra, Lystra, that Timothy was present and that Timothy heard the gospel early on and had received that gospel. And so as Paul heads out in his second missionary journey, he picks up Timothy. And what we do find out about Timothy eventually is that Timothy becomes Paul's best substitute. In other words, he becomes the one who Paul sends into places when he can't go. He is the one that is most like him. First Thessalonians says, And we send Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Wow. Now he's a subordinate, and Paul says, guess what? He is what? Our brother and God's fellow worker. Wow. Now that's a head scratcher. Who can be God's fellow worker? And yet Paul says he is. Timothy was a faithful servant and one who was touched again by the grace of God and then became a minister who went to others and gave the grace of the gospel to others. And these are the men that stand behind 1 Thessalonians. And so as these, as these readers read this, they look at these ministers of gospel and they know that they are men who have been touched by the grace of God. Men who they know intimately, men who have brought them the gospel, who have fellowshiped with them, who have risked their lives to bring the gospel to them. And they know that whatever they write is good and true. And so we see the ministers of the gospel that are coming and writing this book. And right away as they read this, they're excited and they know they need to listen to it because whatever is to come, they can trust and they know is from God. Well, that's the ministers of the gospel. Now we see the recipients, of, uh, the ministers of grace. Now we see the recipients of grace. We're going to get to that second phrase. To the church of Thessal of the Thess of the whoa of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know that got so difficult to say. Now, again, he starts here to the church at Thessalonica, or the church of the Thessalonians. And again, the city of Thessalonica was in a strategic location. If you were to look on the map, it's just on the east side of Greece, up on the coast. It, is, it was situated on the famous Ignatian Way, spanning Macedonia from east to west, and it passed right through the walls of the city. This important Roman highway facilitated brisk travel and commerce and put Thessalonica in, a ready, in ready contact with the important inland districts on either side of it. It was the principal artery of communication between Rome and her eastern provinces. So it was, it was a prestigious city. 
It was situated on, on that northern shore. It had a splendid harbor that, that ships could come in and out. Often uh, it was a chief uh, outlet to the sea for Macedonia. And it was in contact with the rest of the Mediterranean world. So you could see ships from all parts of the Roman world were, were seen sheltered in that harbor. So you could say it was the key to all of Macedonia. It was, a, it was a city that when Paul went there was about the size, about 200,000 people. So it was a large city and it was a city that was known for its intellectual pursuits and its culture. And so it's interesting that Thessalonica is actually one of the few cities from the New Testament that has had uninterrupted history and it still exists today in Greece with a population of over 300,000 people. So this is the city that Paul is going to. It is a mainly Greek city, more than Roman, and so it has that Greek cultural influence in it. Now this church here was planted again on, in Paul's second missionary journey, and we can read about that planting in Acts chapter 17. Paul says, now when they traveled through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren from the city authority, before the city authority, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So this is the beginning of the church. Paul comes to Thessalonica, with Silas and they are in Timothy and they are going to the synagogue like is their normal habit and they spend three Sabbaths or Saturdays with them reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is actually the Messiah. And it appears that they begin to get a following because there are the God-fearing Greeks who, who come, are, start to believe and some of the Jews start to believe. And the Jews that are there who have a synagogue get jealous. They're losing constituency. They're losing people and influence. And so they stir up the city. And what, what we have to realize, and this is something I didn't say before, is that Thessalonica was a free city. 
In other words, it was free to govern itself under, under Rome. So it didn't have a Roman governor over top of the city. And they could make some of their own laws and run the way they wanted as long as they were loyal to Rome. So when they stir up this accusation here, of course, they go exactly where they always go. He's promoting another king. He's promoting another king. And he gets, he gets the, those wicked men to get the crowd in an uproar because, after all, if he's promoting a different king, he's un, he is undermining Caesar. And if that gets back to Rome, what happens to the freedom of the city? It's lost. Rome will come and squash this. So they've picked the perfect issue, as it were, the, the perfect uh, lightning rod to get everyone's attention so that they can get rid of Paul and Silas. And so they find Jason, a, a leader in the church, whose house they were meeting at, and they make him put up a pledge. In other words, you, it's either we're going to take all of your money if, this guy takes, if, if, this guy, if these guys cause trouble, or you put up money and, and if they cause trouble, you won't get it back. But either way, he had to guarantee that these men would no longer cause trouble, these men who were turning the world upside down. And so that is Paul's introduction to the church. And what's interesting here, it says he there we were three weeks. We don't know if he was there a bit longer. It may have been that he was there longer than that. But he's about to write a book to them, and he's about to write a book to the Thessalonians. And you know what it's full of? Doctrine. <laughs> doctrine. Yeah, good old doctrine. This church... Right now, as he writes, as he's writing this, this is about six months after he has been booted out of Thessalonica. He's now at Corinth. And he is writing this, and it's full of doctrine. And we often think, well, we need practical stuff right away. We just need to know what to do. Paul starts with what doctrine? And we have to recognize what the church needs is doctrine. It needs the practical, absolutely. But there's no practical without doctrine. You need doctrine in order to, go to get practice off of. And Paul is now going to give them a foundation and lay them a foundation for the church. Now you'll notice this. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now we, we take the word church for granted. We've Christianized that word. But the word here is actually... Is, is a word called ecclesia. And it was really used, it could be, you could translate it the called out ones, you could call it an assembly. And the idea is, is, is the idea is that you have a, a group of people who gather when they're called by a herald. Sound familiar? But this is the idea, that you have a group of people who are called to assembly, called by a herald. Now, this concept is not Christianized when Paul is writing this. There was many assemblies. In fact, if we go to Acts chapter 19, there's an assembly of those who follow Diana, and they come together against the Christians. So whatever is happening here, he says, there is this assembly of people that are at Thessalonica. There is this group that has been 
as it were, called out together by a herald that are now together. And he identifies them not as individual believers, but as the assembly, as those who are together. There's a group identity here that comes. And there's a spiritual identity that is there. And it's interesting because we often think about ourselves as believers, as individuals, and yet... We are individuals who are placed in a church and we are part of a greater body. And we must recognize that we are not called to believers to be individual believers by ourselves, but we are called to be placed in the church. The Bible doesn't know anything about individual believers. There's not individual believers who are scattered all over. He has placed you in the body and he has placed you in a local body and in the, in the universal body, but he's also put you in the local body. And if you are not attached to the church, then you're not attached to the head, Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as individual believers. And so Paul says, you are the church of Thessalonica. You are the ones who are called out to an into identity. But if we're going to distinguish this between any other kind of assembly, we can't just say it's, it's a group that is meeting in Thessalonica. We, we have to have a, an identity, and here's the spiritual identity that he gives it. In God the Father and the what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gives it a distinguishing spiritual identity. You're not just people from Thessalonica, but you are, you are a gathering that has been called by the herald, by the call of the Holy Spirit, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, you've been called in the Father. Now remember, he is speaking primarily as he writes here to a Gentile church. And there are, there are Gentiles who are coming out of paganism, who are coming out of worshiping idols, and he says, you are distinguished, as it were, from all the other gatherings that are in Thessalonica because now you are in the Father. You are now in Yahweh. You are now in the God of Israel. You are separated out to him. You are no longer a, a, a secular pagan assembly, but you are now those who are in the Father. You are now hidden in him. Well, there was Jewish believers also meeting there, and they had their own synagogue. And to distinguish them, this group from them, he says, you are now what? And in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are now what? In the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you are in the one who claims to be the Messiah. You are in the one that has come and died for sin. You are no longer in Judaism. You are no longer in the synagogue you now must recognize that you are distinguished from them because you stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And guess what? Jesus Christ is God. There's one preposition that hangs over these two. They are inseparable. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are together. They are one. So he is the anointed one of the Old Testament. He is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the one that came and was the Jewish Messiah. 
And so he says, this is who you are. You are the called out ones, the called out ones who are in God the Father. You are the called out ones who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the one who has authority over top of you. Jesus is, is, his, is the name, Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah is our salvation. He is now the one, the human that has come as the God-man. And he is Kurios. He is Lord, the rightful ruler. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he says, this is who you are, the called out ones in him. And so he gives them a spiritual identity. And he says, you, when we brought the gospel to you, God's grace has been put upon you. You are now the ones who are the recipients of his grace. You now have heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit has called you out. And you are now those who sit in God's mercy and grace because you are now his. You are now identified as his and you now sit as, as those who have received God's grace. Well, we've seen the ministers of grace. We've seen the recipients of grace. And now we see the call to grace or the extension of grace. As he addresses them, he gives them that, that last address. Grace to you in peace, Paul says. Grace to you in peace. Now what's interesting here is the normal, this is not the normal greeting. The normal greeting in Greek is the word karin. It means greetings. It's in Acts chapter 15, James chapter 1. Where, where, he, where the word is used. And this is the normal word used in a greeting in Greek in the first century. James, a bondservant of the Lord to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, what? Greetings. But Paul doesn't use that. Paul doesn't use the word karin. He uses the word charis. Charis. The word, the Greek word for Grace the word for grace. And so Paul has moved beyond just the normal, simple formula of greeting and he now uses the word grace. And he's inserted a theology here and he's put it in his letters, grace. Grace is far more than theology, it is, it is the, in one word he conveys his whole full understanding of God's favor shown through Jesus Christ in all its fullness and universality. And he says, grace to you. Not merely, not merely hello, not just a greeting, but God's grace to you. It's interesting, God's grace does not cease at the point of salvation. It continually issues in privileges. And that's what he writes in this next word and peace. Grace to you. Grace must come first. Grace always comes first. And then peace. You cannot have peace without grace. Grace must be extended before grace, peace can be taken. 
Now, in Hebrew letters, you would find the word shalom. Shalom, the word peace. And it, but it meant much more than just lack of fighting or a lack of disputing. The idea was there was, was a, a, a whole sense of peace, a whole sense of life being well. It means prosperity, a holistic prosperity means in every area of life, particularly spiritually. And this peace is a result of that grace where we are now having that spiritual prosperity and peace because we are in right relationship with God. And that's what Peter, that's what Paul is wishing for the Thessalonians. There's no more just a greeting, no more just hello, but a full theological desire. And Paul wants for them that they would experience this grace and that they would experience this peace. And Paul is saying, it's not that I don't think that you already have, don't have it, but he says, I want you to experience it even more. I want you to have more and more of this. You received grace and you had the access to peace. And he says, I want you to grow in it. I want it to be more for you. I want it to be part of your personal experience. I know you already have both in your life, but I want them, I want a desire that you should experience it more and more. And Paul says, as I write this book, this is exactly what I want this book to produce in your life. I want you to see God's grace and I want you to have his peace. I want you to grow in it. And everything that Paul is about to write is going to express and go off this theology. I want you to have grace to you and peace. And so it is for us as we read this book, just like the Thessalonians, it's my hope and my prayer that we too will experience and come to know in a greater way the peace, the grace and peace of God in our lives. And that's what we have to look forward to as we walk through the book of Thessalonians and read it just like the Thessalonians did. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this introduction and all the theology and all the things that we can learn from it. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to be those who desire to grow in grace and in your peace. And I pray that as we go through the book of Thessalonians, that you will demonstrate your grace to us and that we might experience that holistic peace of, that comes from a relationship with our, with our God and that trickles down into every area of our life, knowing that we are secure in you and that we know you. And so we pray this for your glory and for our good in your name. Amen.